Welcome to Pioneers, a five-part podcast series featuring one-on-one conversations with some of Rhode Island's most notable civic leaders. I'm your host, Mary Kim Arnold. Pioneers is produced by the Rhode Island Foundation, the state's largest and most comprehensive funder of nonprofit organizations. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience. I talked with Amanda Milkovitz, who has until just recently been a reporter for the Providence Journal, covering crime and justice since 2000. Now she's moved on to the Boston Globe to cover Rhode Island. She's won awards for her articles about high-profile issues, including organized crime, sex trafficking, and gun violence. We had our conversation at the Providence Public Safety Complex. Welcome, Amanda, to Pioneers. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. It's uh, exciting and strange to be on the other side of the notepad. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So I'd like to start where we usually do with a bit about your early life and childhood. You mentioned that you're the only journalist in the family, first in your family to go to college, the oldest of six, as I recall. Uh, Six, yes. So I wonder if you'd just tell us a bit about how your early life may have influenced your path. Well, so there's no journalists, uh, there's no writers, but I just always loved to write and I loved to read pretty much as soon as I learned how to read. I had a library card and um, began trying to write my own stories. And I actually wrote my first book at six, not to brag, uh, <laughs> but um, I was, um, my father gave in to daddy buy me a pony when I was six and it was a complete mistake, which they learned really quickly. And so we had to give the pony to my aunt's farm. Wait, an actual pony? A real pony, a real honest-to-God pony. I don't know why they did it, but I was grateful (laughs) for the month that we had the pony. Um, I was devastated. So my mother said, why don't you write about it? So I wrote a story, Brandy and Me, and it was illustrated. That was the first time I thought, well, let me try to put something, how I'm feeling, and, and tell a story. And as the oldest, and those of you who are the oldest may understand this, I ended up taking care of my brothers and sisters a lot. We had a ritual where I would tell them stories. We wouldn't read stories. I would make up stories for them. And they generally were scary stories because that's what they liked. And I was just kind of develop them on the spot. That's where I kind of learned a little bit about storytelling. Do you remember any of the plots of those stories? I, I don't, well, no. I, I really wish I did. My brothers still talk about them and how terrified they were. But honestly, I can remember, sometimes I just couldn't figure out how to get out of a situation. So I would make up, oh my God, what's that sound? Oh my God, is there something in the closet? And they'd be like, what, what? I'm like, I'm getting out of here. And that was how it ended the story. I would just leave the room and leave them screaming. And it wasn't kind of a mean thing to do to them. But um, that's also what they remember from sure. my stories. Yeah, well, that suspense, right? Right. <laughs> What will come next? I'll be back next week. (laughs) You told me, I think, a story about a teacher who Mm. uh, maybe encouraged you. You know, you look back, it's like there's moments in your life when you really are unsure and there may be somebody who appears who just says the right thing at the right time. And I've had probably two people in my life who did that. And seventh grade teacher, she was so dynamic. Everybody loved her. She was just a powerhouse and she had the ability to look at kids and really understand what would work for for them. So it was the Iran hostage crisis and she decided she wanted us all to write an essay about it. I thought, well, what would it be like being a hostage? What would it be like being blindfolded in the dark? I mean, I was watching TV, so I had an idea of what it was about. And so I wrote about it as the first person, 
you know, pretending I'm a hostage and what I'm thinking about and how scared I am and wondering if anybody's going to come for me and trying to have hope. And she loved it. And she sent it to the local newspaper and they published it. So that was my first experience being published. But, you know, looking at that teacher, I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. There were a lot of things I'd like to do. But when I thought of jobs, I thought of what I saw everybody else doing. You know, they did work that paid the bills. No one was doing anything that they said they loved. And she talked to me about being a writer. She says, you can do this. This is, this is a skill you have. And when I was starting to look at colleges, I thought, well, how am I going to get paid to be a writer? Because, you know, as an author, it's pretty rare that you can support yourself. When you're Stephen King, you can do it. But I had no illusions that I was going to do that. So that's when I thought about newspapers. And I was very practical. I wasn't crazy about newspapers, honestly. I thought they were pretty boring. But, I mean, I did. I, we when, can you know, edit when that out. Kid, oh, but when you're a kid... You know, what do you care about the planning board? I don't, you know, and I wasn't really following sports. I loved the columns. I loved arts. But what I saw was people were writing and they were getting paid to do it. And they were having all these experiences and meeting different people. And they were having an impact. I'm like, I, if I'm going to learn how to be a writer, I have to do it every day. And I need deadline. And I need life experiences. And maybe this is a good venue. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing insight to have about your own uh, needs in terms of being productive. I think you mentioned that maybe your first job was driving a horse and buggy yep. in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. That's, I, when I look back, I, I can't believe that actually happened. So we lived in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. And when I was 14, we had the parental pep talk, which was we have six kids. We're not going to pay for you to go to college. You have to figure it out. And by the way, when you turn 18, we're not responsible for you anymore. So I was told to find a job. And I, I was too young, really, to work legally. And I didn't just want to be a babysitter. But two miles away, within walking distance, was this restaurant called Parker's Maple Barn. It was kind of a kitschy place. I mean, people would go and, and have the maple syrup and there was a sap house and you could learn about how the maple syrup was made. And they also had horses and a buggy. So I walked down the hill to the restaurant, introduced myself to the owner and said, I can drive the horse and buggy. If, if you give me a job and I'll muck out the stalls, I'll do anything, I'll work cheap. And he said, yes. And I didn't know anything about driving horses. I had to figure out the harness and the horses really didn't want to drive the buggy. They wanted to stay in the barn. So I learned a lot about how to figure things out on the fly, but it was a great job. It was really a lot of fun. I mean, what is better? Did I want a waitress or did I want to drive a horse and buggy and take tourists around? It was so much more interesting. Well, I love too that you just, you know, said, I, I can do this and then figured it out, which I imagine yeah. is a thing that you uh, keep returning to. I, kinda, I felt like I didn't have a choice. Yeah. It was one of those, you need to find a job and figure out what that job is going to be. I had a, a lot of jobs. I cleaned houses. I ended up waitressing and busing tables. I worked as a disc jockey. And then I got a job in a hospital, and I ended up working um, as a dialysis technician. And I, I did that for a couple of years. When I was doing those jobs, I was always thinking, when am I ever going to make it as a writer? What, what do I do? I really didn't have a roadmap. So it was a confusing time. But looking back, I can see where all of these moments really help me with my career today. 
Um, so uh, in 2000, you joined the Providence Journal and you came coming from New Hampshire. And you had said that reporting was a really great way to get to know the city quickly. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered? Oh, so I, I, mean, I originally started in a bureau in Massachusetts for a couple of months. And then they offered me the job covering the Providence Police Department. And I jumped on my chair because it sounded so much fun. I have some cops in my family. So I know a little bit, but not really a lot. And if you really want to get to know the city, I think it's such a fun way if you can go on a ride along with the cops because you see it in a very different way. You see all the types of people who call and those who don't call. And I knew nothing about Providence um, besides coming here a few times to visit a friend of mine. I really fell in love with the city. It felt like a bunch of big neighborhoods all stuck together and everybody knew each other. And when you introduce yourself to somebody, that, and I do this now because I've been here 19 years, try to figure out how you're connected in some way. It's like going to a family reunion. It's like, did you go to a high school together? Do you know so-and-so? Did you play sport? I mean, it's, I just, I really loved it. It reminded me in some ways of a small town in New Hampshire. Friendly, and people were more friendly than I anticipated, and warm and charming and funny and self-deprecating. It was just a unique, special, special city. And I mean, over the last 20 years, you've seen probably a lot of, changes. Do you have any particular things that stand out to you in terms of the nature of the city changing? When I came here, I felt like people took for granted that things didn't work and there was corruption and there was crime and there was the good old boy network. There's some of that still here, but it it felt more accepted then. And it felt, it felt like the city was really being held back. I, I don't think that is the main topic of conversation anymore. When I travel, people talk about Providence and just they want to come here. They're excited by it. I mean, they talk about the restaurant scene. Everybody talks about water fire. Everybody still talks about Buddy CNC. That is never going to end. <laughs> um, but I, I think that things are really turning around for the better. And then directly looking at the Providence Police Department, the ev- evolution has been enormous. They've become much more open to the community, much more open to the public, much more transparent. And, you know, those connections really show. I mean, there's, Still progress to be made, but you can say that about anything. We tend to think of crime in the sort of scandal way, but it's been really interesting to sort of hear you talk about everyday people and more about untold stories. And to me, that seems more like a justice perspective. And I wonder what sort of thoughts you have about the justice part of your work. I think that's a good question because you want to know what's happening in your community, crime is a good place to start. I mean, you see the effects of education, positive and negative. You see what's happening with poverty, with mental health, with community resources, changes in neighborhoods. I mean, it just, you can tell such a big story beyond the police blotter. And I think the hard thing as as a journalist is we don't always have the time to go into those nitty gritty stories. You know, over the 19 years, I've really tried to pull back and take the long view and look at a greater perspective and say, well, what is really happening here? What is the impact on people? You know, they're taking guns off the street. Okay, whatever. Well, what does it mean to take a gun off the street? Well, let's look at one gun. Let's look at all the people who are impacted by that gun. Let's look at all the people who were murdered, the people who were shot, the, the neighborhoods that were shot up just because this one gun was circulated among people who shouldn't have had it. If we talk about sex trafficking and prostitution, all right, well, what does that really mean? Well, let's talk to somebody who lived that life. How did she get into it? What was it like for her? What is it like now that she's out of it? Just get out of the way and let those people tell the story. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about what you think are some of the most critical issues facing journalists. 
internally, it's, you know, the, uh, I don't want to call it a collapse, but it's the, the drawdown on the, in the newspaper industry. They were really struggling right now. I mean, it's no secret how the journal has been affected. I know anyone who reads the journal has picked it up over the last couple of years has seen the impact of what's happening to the newspaper industry. I mean, my very first newspaper, a little weekly up in uh, New Hampshire that competed with another little weekly is gone. It would have been around for more than a hundred years. It's now a chocolate shop. I talk to classes a lot and kids starting out, it's going to be harder for them to get into it because those jobs are gone. On a national level and even a global level, it's the impact of the, quote, fake news phenomenon and people not knowing what to believe. You know, you look at certain politicians nationally and locally who use fake news. Um, Generally, it's because they're trying to cover something up. I know that. Does the general public know that? Media literacy is an issue. Social media is kind of a problem because of some of the phony news sites that are out there. And I think people are just overwhelmed. There's so much information coming at people. And if we can't even agree on what the facts are, it's hard to have a conversation of what we want our community, our country to look like. Many of us understand how increasingly difficult or challenging it is to be a journalist. And I just wonder how you stay focused and stay committed I have a hard job, but no harder than anyone else's. And what keeps me going is feeling like, well, is this meaningful? Is this, is this doing anything? Am I having any impact? Are people feeling informed? Am I doing my job? That's what keeps me going, hoping that this is going to make a difference. Think of one story I did last year. There's a man named Dave Silipini who had suffered for about 50 years after being, um, he said he was raped twice by a priest and destroyed his life. And he was never able to tell anybody, but he decided to tell me, which meant I told everybody, let him tell everybody. And after the story was published, I mean, he just was a changed man. It was like this weight was off him. He's like, I'm free. Everybody knows. They know it wasn't my fault. Everybody understands. I I wrote on that one for a long time. (laughs) I just felt so good about that. Maybe this is related a bit, but I think people often are curious about how you may have overcome sort of adversity on a maybe on a personal scale would you say that you've encountered certain obstacles in your career trajectory and how have you handled those some of it i think is sometimes being female in a more male dominated profession i think that's going to be different for the generation coming up people will underestimate you i went to a state school i didn't go to an ivy league i'm from a blue collar background so i've got a chip on my shoulder i would be in a newsroom and particularly, you know, sometimes at the journal with people who had more privileges than I did. And they wouldn't necessarily talk about it, but I would feel it. So I try to let that make me better. Like, okay, I can do this. I can do this better than you. And it would just be a little game in my head. I'm, you know, playing mind games with myself, but that's how I think about it. You know, there were obstacles. They felt like obstacles at the time. Now I look back and maybe they weren't. Maybe those were... That was exactly what I needed. When I talk to classes now, I I tell them to have other jobs besides journalism. Do other things. You can't just go from high school to college in journalism, intern in journalism, then be a journalist because you don't know anything. You have to do other things. Be something other than just someone who writes other people's stories. So you've recently left the journal uh, after nearly 20 years to cover Rhode Island for the Globe. What excites you most about this move? Everything. I am just like over the moon about this. I've been reading The Globe since I was a teenager. It was always my go-to. I love The Globe and I've loved the journal and I can't believe it would have been 19 years in July. It went by so fast. 
but the globe wants to cover Rhode Island and I can cover Rhode Island and they want crime, but they want a lot of things. And there's so many good stories. The opportunity to take Rhode Island to a bigger audience, perhaps a national audience. The globe has no idea how great the state is. Well, we're really lucky to have you up there. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe, subscribe. (laughs) So we do have a couple questions from the audience and I took a peek at them and they're really great. So can you tell us about the best story you wrote from your first newspaper job? Okay. Yes, I can. I was covering a selectman's meeting in this little town of Mason. My mother, because this is a small town, was administrative assistant there. And I got word that there was a guy in town, actually just died recently, who was making threats because he got his tax bill and he was going to have to kill somebody about it. So I went to the meeting and the police chief was there with bulletproof vests that he put on all the selectmen. And they sat there and they waited for him to show up. And he didn't show up. I called him up and and he's like, what? (laughs) They did what? He said, I wasn't going to kill them. He was mad, but he wasn't so mad that he didn't go on vacation that week. So I um, I took the picture of them putting on their bulletproof vests, and it's funny now, but a couple of years ago, he was arrested with a gun. I think he was angry at the post office this time. So it was it, laughing now, but it was it was something to be worried about. Yeah, yeah. So as a journalist, how do you balance building trust with your sources while holding them accountable? You build trust by being straight with them, saying, this is what I'm doing. They might be in trouble. They might have done something not very smart. I'll tell them, look, you know how this looks. Here are my questions. You get a chance to talk about this. And that's all I can offer them is you get a chance to say something. I'll give you a chance. It may not look good. You may not say the right thing. It's not up to me. But I want to at least be fair. And I've had people call me back and say, you know, th- that was fair. Even Buddy CNC, <laughs> that was fair. And that, that's the best you can hope for. And I think that also builds trust when people know where you're coming from. There's no... Sp- no reason to do a gotcha story. Mm-hmm. If, if you've got the goods, you can come out and tell them, look, it, I've got the goods, so tell me what you think and make sure they have a chance to respond to that. What is the scariest thing, uh, I guess this is like scariest situation you've ever seen a police officer encounter while on the job? Oh, um, a lot, actually. One situation I can think of off the top of my head, I was doing a story on the clubs getting out and this was probably about 10 years ago or so, and it was always chaos. People get out there drunk. They're automatically fighting. The horses come down. Cops are trying to move people. There's gunfire. And right near the journal building, there's this side street with a parking garage. And there were people filled in the parking garage on every level, leaning out, screaming, throwing beer bottles. And I saw one cop in that crowd. And he had a look of fear on his face. Because it was just, what is, what is this crowd going to do? Is it going to really, are they going to riot? What could he do? He didn't really do anything. And that was probably the smartest thing he could have done is not react because the wave went and then it calmed down. And then you heard the sirens of more, you know, more cruisers coming down and then people went on their way. And that was just a taste of what downtown Providence was like at that moment. This question is, I imagine you've seen some of the worst behavior. How do you maintain perspective? Hmm. You see some really horrible things. And there's definitely some stories that are never going to go away. Almost every single one of them involved children. Sometimes it's accidents that have killed children. I mean, there's one that a 
in the beginning of my career who I think about on the anniversary every year and how old he would be. And then there's others where horrible things are done to children. There was one, probably might have been 10 years ago, and these two young men befriended this 17-year-old or 18-year-old girl who had a little boy, and they pimped her out in Boston. And while she was out, they started just torturing him, throwing him into walls, force-feeding him food, you know, forcing him to smoke pot. I mean, just the most heinous things you could have done. And he started to die. And when she finally came back, she didn't realize she thought he was sleeping. That one so disturbed me, and it still disturbs me. Thing is, none of us are, we're all vulnerable to something like this. I mean, sometimes people are in situations because they put themselves in situations where they're going to get hurt. But a lot of times, bad things are happening to good people, and it reminds you, it's like, oh, you know, doesn't mean it can't happen to you or anybody you love or anybody you know. You're just lucky right now. To maintain perspective, it's difficult. It's difficult. You know, you kind of have to put it aside, put up a big wall and just do my job. Yeah. Yeah. What is one wish you have for your new role? Oh, just tell great stories. That's it. I want to tell great stories that people are talking about every single day that are honest and true to Rhode Island. That you read them, you're like, I didn't know that was happening. I want to do something about it. Or I'm glad somebody is writing about that. Thank God somebody is writing about that. That's what I want to do. Yeah. All right, Amanda, before we let you go, we do something called the lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Go. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Being outdoors. Dogs or cats? I have one of each, so no preference. <laughs> no favorites. What if you have to decide? Um, I have to live with them both. <laughs> Probably a dog. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here. Yeah. Greater fear, deep space or deep underwater? I think they both sound great as long as the oxygen lasts. <laughs> what do you <laughs> What do you most value in your friends? Ah, uh, kindness. What is your favorite word or phrase? Oof. Feel the fear but do it anyway. What word or phrase do you most dislike? Oh, that's easy. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> If your career hadn't worked out the way it did, what would you be doing instead? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> a nurse, because I almost did it. But this is what I wanted to do, no matter what. If there's a heaven, who or what is waiting for you there, and what's the first thing they'd say? Oh, gosh. I'm glad you said what, because I hope my old dog is there. Hopefully old relatives, and I hope welcome, and not, what are you doing here? <laughs> you in. (laughs) Well, Amanda, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your years of stories and service to Rhode Island. And thank you for spending this time with us. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Pioneers, produced by the Rhode Island Foundation and brought to you by the Civic Leadership Fund an annual fund that broadens the scope and increases the responsiveness of the foundation's traditional philanthropy. Our show is edited by Megan Hall, sound design and theme music by Tom Van Buskirk. To support efforts like this one, please visit rifoundation.org.